Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. I'm very happy with the life I lead and with the fact that I have a disability. It's, It's not who I am. It's part of who I am, though, and I'm not ashamed of it. I, I hope that other young, you know, people coming through don't have to feel ashamed about that ever again because it's a, it's a part of who they are. And I think the more that, you know, we have incredible people out there writing and, and demanding that people understand that we want the same things as everyone else, love, respect, relationships, work, nice clothes, whatever it is, how is it different to what you want? Welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the whip-smart Naz Campanella. Naz is a journalist who cut her teeth at the ABC and Triple J, where she became one of the world's first ever blind newsreaders. Now she works as the ABC's first disability affairs reporter, a role she calls her dream job, in which she provides a platform where the voices of people living with disability are heard. Naz has committed her life and career to representing and empowering the disability community and to debunking the assumptions that are so often used as barriers to hold people with disabilities back. Naz herself has been blind since she was six months old and has a neurological condition that means she can't read Braille, but is proof that when you have the right support networks and unwavering self-belief, just about anything is possible. Here's Naz. Naz, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. This has been a long time coming and we are so excited to have you. Ladies, I am so excited to be here with you. I have we to say, are... we, when did we try to tee this up, Mish? Oh, ages ago, but we are huge fans of yours, Naz. I three, remember. Three months ago, I think. That we tried. It was months ago. I remember when I was a teenager driving to my work. I used to work at a dress store called Barriano when I was maybe like 18. And I remember listening to you read the news on Triple J and I was been a huge fan of yours for so long. So I'm having a little bit of a fangirl moment, oh. which I don't typically have. No, no offense to our other guests. <laughs> I'm having a Guys. <laughs> well, I'm super excited because I am a genuine fan of this podcast. I listen to it every Monday and every Thursday. And I do have to give a big shout out to my gorgeous sister-in-law, Helen, who recommended this podcast to me and whose morning commute in Berlin would never be the same on a Monday morning without you guys. So you've got fans far and wide. (laughs) Thank you, Helen. Shout out to Helen. Naz, we're actually going to um, mix this up just to throw you off a bit, but we usually start with the same question. But what I wanted to ask today and what we want to ask at the moment is, how are you going? It's been a hectic time in the last few months in Australia and across the world. How are you? 
I'm good. The pandemic has been really full on for lots of people for so many different reasons. And, you know, the disability community is one of the the groups that has been really impacted, you know, that's been isolating for lots of people. And I think at the beginning, lots of people were talking about how it was only, you know, a, a virus that would affect you if you were really old and really sick. And there are lots of people with disability who are very young, who have lots of comorbidities. And I think early on, they were sort of thinking, well, this does affect me and I'm not old and I could really die from this if it if it gets really bad. And so it's been a really hard time on lots of people. And I've obviously been one of the people reporting on a lot of that. So hearing a lot of people's stories. For me personally, I have had mixed sort of things. I've I felt a little bit isolated at times, but I've also felt that it's been a great time to sit still for a while, for the first mm. time in a long time. And just take time for me. And it's something I haven't done in a, in a long time. That's really beautiful. I love that. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Do you like alone time? I love alone time, actually. Yeah. I Look, I love talking to people. I love being around people. But equally, in equal measure, I love being on my own. I Is it bad to say you love your own company? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, it's I love, beautiful to say that. I I love, you know, I love to read. I love to listen to podcasts. I love, you know, being with my own thoughts and doing yoga and exercise and all of those sorts of things. And I think, yeah, it's equal parts introvert and extrovert for me, I think, because there are times where I really don't want to be around people. I think as I've gotten older, I've become more introverted as well. So I would have loved nothing more than to pop out on a Saturday night and have a party with, you know, bunches of people around in my 20s. And now being 31, I sort of I really relish the the Saturday night on the couch with a you know glass of wine and a movie and my husband now and it's that's the best thing for me now. Oh, you are preaching to the choir. I mean, I'm only nearly 26 and I feel like I'm getting more introverted as You've I get got older. Of time. I know. I'm already turning into you. <laughs> 31. No, I'm not far off. Now, what is my, my brother? My brother says to me that I I was I was born old. Is what he says to me. <laughs> I'm such a boring soul. I actually think that's the biggest compliment in the world because doesn't that speak to wisdom? Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Naz, you touched on podcasts and books and stuff before. What are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to someone listening right now? So I'm, I've just finished, well, no, partway through Judith Lucy's Overwhelmed and Dying, which has been has been interesting. I, I really like the, the kind of simple way of trying to find meaning in the world and in life and trying to find happiness from the small things. I'm only sort of three episodes in, so it's half a recommendation, I guess. So really enjoying that at the moment. But, you know, I've got the core ones that I listen to every single day, you know, AM, PM, The World Today, the weekly ones, obviously, You Guys, No Filter, and you know, the the kind of newsy podcasts. But then I really love, because I'm in news all day, every day, and let's face it, a lot of the news is hard going. Um, it can be a bit um, hard on the hard on the psyche. I, I do like to just sit back and watch kind of girly, trashy things. You know, I mean, my be- my favourite show in the whole wide world is Bol- The Bold and the Beautiful. So I'm like, what does that say? What? <laughs> I thought you were going to say The Bold Type and I was like, yeah, that's pretty like sugary. And then you went all the way to The Bold and the Beautiful. That is yeah. like extreme sugar. Sorry. Yeah, it really is. Um, <laughs> I, I did recently watch Normal People on, is it on Stan? Um, mm-hmm. 
Now, I know you guys love it. <gasps> You're going to break Here we go. Look, You're going to no, break no, our heart. Half, half. I haven't read the book, I, but the half-hour episodes got to me. They, I felt like they were over before they'd even started, so that, that I found a bit disjointing. I wasn't sure whether I was supposed to love or hate Connell. Um, <gasps> what? You're supposed to love Connell? Oh, but there were times, like, I really hated the way he just was happy to sleep with her and do all this stuff but then not talk to her. And I know that's all, like, teen, you know, getting to know each other and working through everyday things, but it's, come on, I just, I thought it was really mean and I sort of. I think you're actually speaking to a whole bunch of listeners right now, by the way. I think Zara and I got on our podcast, <laughs> just brooked Connell to the absolute hills. We just adored him and a lot of listeners didn't agree with us. So you're I probably like the, the silent majority. I liked him in the end and I how many sex scenes in that thing? Like I didn't have to watch them, but my God, there was a lot. There was a Do lot you know of on that show they had like a sex, oh, God, I'm going to get the word wrong, not orchestrator, choreographer. It sounded like they a, had sex a sex consultant. Scene choreographer. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think it was a bit too much at times. It was almost like they, they needed something to fill in the certain parts and I was just like, no, not another one and I'm not a prude. Like I'm. The, the kissing sounds were a lot. There was the, so many sounds. It was a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was very audio rich, shall we say. Naz, going from the highs and lows of the bold type and normal people, we want to start, of course, with your childhood, like we do with everyone. But something pivotal happened in very early childhood, in fact, infancy for you. You have been blind since you were six months old when a rare abnormality caused the retinas to tear away from your eyes. Now, of course, you don't have any memory of that time. You were six months old. But we do wonder, what have you heard about that time in your life from your parents? I've heard from mostly mum. I mean, dad's doesn't really talk about it too much. Not that he doesn't want to. Um, he's just a get up and get on with it type of person, always has been. And there's not much that he sees negative, you know, in a negative light ever. So mm. he's always been very upbeat and very positive. I think mum really struggled. They'd never met anybody with a disability before having me. And it was a shock. And they they said it all just happened very quickly. It was you know, I was screaming in immense pain. Eyes were very red, swollen. They didn't know what to do, rushed me to the hospital. And next thing you know, they were just being told that I was never going to be able to see again. And so it was a huge shock. And my mum, they're very practical people. So it was straight away, right, we want all the you know, all the best doctors to tell us what to do. You know, we need occupational therapists and speech pathologists or wh- whoever it is that can come and help us to help her navigate the world. And yeah, so really just seeking out lots of information. They were never into, you know, Googling and all that stuff. They just wanted to hear things from the horse's mouth about, you know, what what is going to be the state of play here and how do we navigate this? What was your childhood like when we are talking about your memories, not your parents' memories? What do you remember and what were you like as a kid? I grew up in a very loud, huge Italian family. And so we, I remember loads of family dinners where it was hard to get a word in a conversation, (laughs) plenty and plenty of food, incredible food. I mean, I, I didn't grow up on anything kind of processed or with preservatives. Everything was handmade by my, my beautiful nonna and mum and dad. And every, you know, 
if you guys have ever watched Looking for Ella Brandy. And yes. so, you know, the tomato sauce days and the bread making and the wine making, we did all of that. And, oh, my God, amazing. And even the bits about, you know, where and you tell a secret to someone and then, you know, it just slowly infiltrates the rest of the family. Like that is my family. Everyone knows, you know, everything that's going on. And they're incredibly supportive, very positive. They're all very, you know, you've got what you've got and you move on and you you deal with it and you have the best life possible, which was a brilliant family to grow up in because it was very happy. We were always together on holidays and doing amazing things together. I don't really remember anything visual in terms of, I guess, colour or objects or anything like that. You know, I was so young. Naz, I want to talk to you about this resolve and determination and drive that just seems to be so intrinsic to who you are as a person. Because on top of being blind, you also have struggles to learn Braille and read Braille because of a condition that you were born with that's not related to blindness. And I want to know, it seems like there are hurdles that have been placed in front of you that you have just bounded over and you have just excelled in life so far beyond what other people's expectations of you may have been. And I want to know, Is that drive, do you think, fostered by your family? Do you think you were born with that drive? Do you think you just had to find that drive? What's your relationship with it? I think it's half upbringing and part just who I am. I think Mm. being born into a very strong-willed family to parents that have always been go-getters, you know, dad's incredibly creative, mum is very stubborn, has always done her own thing, kind of, you know, gone against the grain and been her own person and dad has very much been the same. And so it's kind of inevitable that my brother or I, one of us would have been that person and and it's me. But then also I, I think because early on I had these situations where teachers were telling me I was lazy or that I couldn't do something or that my parents were making excuses for me, you know, b- because I was really struggling to read Braille and, and those were kind of the things that teachers were saying to me. And that situation made me really depressed and feel really stupid and I fell further and further behind because my parents wanted to have me, for example, tested to see whether there was a reason why I couldn't read Braille and all of those concerns were sort of met with these nasty comments and so it was a long time until I was diagnosed with my muscle condition that affected my ability to read Braille. But then when I had that diagnosis, sure, it was a double whammy, but for me it was this incredible turning point where I could go, I'm never going to let someone treat me like that ever again. And even though I was very young, 10, you know, I think because I had other things to overcome at such a young age, it kind of made me a little bit more mature and a bit wiser earlier than I might have otherwise been. I'm so interested in how young you were, you say 10 years old, when you can recall like very vividly feeling those feelings of like sadness and annoyance at the people who were saying those things to you. I wanted to ask you about that period. I know you've just touched on it about learning to to read Braille because you, I, I was listening to a podcast you did quite recently where you told that the story of doing like an exam over three days because no one had told you that, you know, you had this condition. Can you talk us through the moments of not realizing that you couldn't do Braille, not because you, you know, didn't have the ability, but because you had a genetic condition? I think... So if we take a step back, I think what I'd, what I'd felt from a really early age, even before the whole reading, not being able to read Braille thing, was the notion that I was somehow seen as different. And so I, 
I started off not wanting to use my white cane to get around, for example, because I, I felt like everyone thought I was different. So to use a cane would make me even more visibly different. And so when I was struggling to read Braille, I'd already, I guess I already had, I guess subconsciously that notion that I didn't want to sit outside away from the rest of my classmates. I didn't want to do this exam over three days when they had finished it in half a day. I didn't want to be different. I just wanted to fit in. And, you know, part of it was probably a disability thing, but part of it was also just a young girl wanting to fit in with the rest of her peers. And so there were tiny I don't even think, you know, at the time I obviously didn't think they were realisations. I look back now and know that. But they were just tiny little things that all really amounted to me just wanting to be my own person like everybody else but but in amongst everyone else. On top of everything, to have your teachers insinuate or outright say that you are lazy must have been really difficult. Was there a period of time when doubt coming from the people around you, particularly people that should be your mentors, like your teachers, did that affect your relationship with yourself and your own self-doubt? I felt really stupid for for a little while. And I think what what it made me feel most of all was that, you know, I did have this really happy, go-lucky, sort of free, wonderful upbringing with a wonderful family. And yet we were fighting constantly over the dinner table because I'd have the Braille book in front of me, my parents either side with a printed copy of the book I was struggling to read. And mum would say, no, you just have to keep trying. You'd have to keep trying. And then dad would say, she just can't do it. Like, this is, this is not fair on her. Like, and they would end up arguing. And it kind of created this tension that we'd never experienced before. And I think, you know, my dad was trying to say, you know, to mum, I think, you know, we need to stop listening to this one particular teacher because, all right, she's supposed to know how this works, but she clearly doesn't because there's Naz just is really struggling and it's making her upset and we need to look at other options. I don't even know if that answered your question. No, it did. I mean, I'm talking on behalf of Mish. It was Mish's question, but other than that, so many interviews I've read that you've done, it seems so obvious that you wanted to head into journalism from a really young age. What was it about journalism that you were so drawn to? I was one of those kids who would sit with like a tape recorder and like record my voice introing and outroing songs <laughs> and like talking to my brother and just doing stupid things. And I'd sit there and like make my family listen to them over and over again and like tell me how good they were. And I loved music. I loved the way people sounded. And I think because radio was how I, you know, I woke up and put the radio on. I went to sleep with the radio on. I just loved knowing what was happening outside, like, my little world. And I guess I really realised the power of that when I wanted to do community radio in high school and I had to create a, you know, a community radio program and took calls from members of the public and I didn't even know what they were going to call up about, but they were calling about all kinds of things and I realised the power that you could have in turning people's thoughts into a real conversation and connecting people. And I really loved it. And then I got my first um, internship with Clio magazine when I was 16. 
We do want to talk to you about that pathway to becoming the incredible journalist you are now. And we wanted to quote you back to you, if that's okay. You did an interview with Broadsheet quite a few years ago. You said, I guess not a lot of people have met people with disabilities and not a lot of people are open-minded about what they're capable of. So I think they were taken aback when someone with no sight walked into their office and said, I want a job. This is what I can do. That's not necessarily about your very first internship, but talk to us about the process of going through internships and eventually landing your first job. I don't know how I had the guts to do this, but I just started calling like magazines and just asking for the email address of the editor or, you know, the editorial assistant or whoever it was. And I knew all the names because I'd sit and make my friends and cousins like, I would make my mum buy magazines every month for me. And then I would make, (laughs) I would, I would make my friends and cousins go through page by page, explaining like who the editors were, reading cover to cover, explaining all the fashion, you know, what everyone was wearing, where I could buy the certain things. Cause I love absolutely love fashion. And so I knew, you know, who the who the people were that I should email and all those sorts of things, but I have no idea where I got the courage to kind of do that from such an early age. I think because I also had quite a, an older sounding voice, even though I was so young, I could kind of fake that I was like a uni student or something. Um, and half the time I'd lie, I'd just say, oh, you know, just wanting to email, I'm halfway through my degree and really interested in doing an internship with you. And then yeah, and but um, it worked somehow. So, and you know, anyone's willing to give you work for free, let's face it. So, you know, started out doing things like cleaning out the fashion cupboard and I'd sit there and like feel all the clothes and it was amazing. And like the first internship I did at Clio, um, I took a, a school friend with me. We did it together. So it was sort of a, a little taste of getting public transport and going into the office. And, and I, it was sort of good because I could feel like, even though I was really intimidated by walking into this big fancy office with these fancy people, I had a friend there who was kind of, you know, 16 as well and feeling nervous and we could kind of do it together. Coming up after the break, Naz talks about her husband and the love she, at one point in her life, was convinced she'd never find. But first a word from today's sponsor. So you got your cadetship at the ABC and then spent a year, I think, reporting regionally. In a piece I read you recently wrote for the ABC, oh, no, I'm going to quote you back to you again. You'll be so sick of yourself by the end of this. <laughs> you said, you wrote, I felt like some people weren't sure if they could send me out onto the field to cover stories or whether they could trust me to file on time like they did with every other reporter. It wasn't malicious. They just didn't know. I wanted to ask you about that kind of knowledge gap, about how when we see someone who isn't like us, instead of asking how we can support them or ask them questions, sometimes we end up saying nothing at all because we don't know what to say or what we should say. How did that manifest in the early years of your career? Lots of people, let's face it, haven't met anybody with a disability before. They may probably rarely had, you know, seen them in a publication or on TV or something. And it's probably in the sense of like, wow, this person's had a car accident and they're, you know, finally regaining their ability to do, you know, loads of other things. And it's this whole inspo porn type thing. So their, I guess, experience is very limited. And the experience they have had is that kind of inspo porn one where they see people with disability as almost charity or needing to be fixed or, you know, they couldn't possibly have wonderful, fulfilling, successful lives. And it's not malicious. It's just when you haven't had that experience, you've got nothing 
to to go off, I guess. And so for me, when I first came to the ABC, on the whole, I had fantastic people who were really keen, like, you know, I think there was a bit of a fight over who would sit next to me and all that sort of thing. <laughs> with, with people really were, were really keen. And, you know, journos by nature are super curious and, and want to ask a thousand questions, which is amazing. But there were some people who just weren't sure. And I think they were very worried about putting me in danger, you know, what was what was going to be safe and what wasn't. And so I think it was only natural for them to feel like that. But I, I just wished that perhaps there was a bit more training given. And this goes for everybody. You know, there needs to be a, a conversation had that involves the person with disability, of course, around you know, safety measures, whether you want, how you want them to approach your disability, be involved in in the disability awareness training that the workplace has. But, you know, the, the onus is not on the person with the disability to to start all of that. It's It needs to come from from higher up in whatever organisation you're, you're in. Totally. Naz, you went on to become one of the most recognisable names at Triple J. And I want to know, what are your memories of those years? You were there for so long and you built such a glittering career for yourself there. Look, I was so thrilled to be moving into Triple J. It was an absolute dream that I'd had for so long and to have it in my early 20s felt really special. I don't know many people who can say, probably apart from you guys, um, who were in their early 20s and is doing their dream job, you know. So that was an amazing feeling. But there were also some really tough times. I remember when I started, you know, I was was obviously quite new to the system that I was using to read the news and occasionally it would completely just die on me mid-bulletin and I'd be there, you know, live to air and I'd just have to figure out what to do or, you know, I'd, I'd stumble over a word here and there and there were times when feedback from people in the audience wasn't wasn't amazing, but you learn to develop a really thick skin and you find that, you know, when you surround yourself with amazing colleagues, which I did, um, they were incredibly supportive. And I think the, the thing that it got me through those tougher times was knowing that so long as I was putting my best foot forward and I was working hard to make sure that everything went right, if it went wrong, I just had to keep going and... I just ended up not looking at the text line in those in those first kind of early bulletins. But then I was also getting amazing emails from people on the flip side of that, people who had wanted to be journalists but the industry never catered for them or their disability, so they'd gone in to do something completely different and they, I guess, on, on one hand they were happy but they, they were also really disappointed they didn't, you know, maybe try harder or there were emails from people saying, I want to do this and now that you're there, I want some advice. And those were the emails that kept me going on, on I guess, the, the tougher days because I knew that, number one, I was there because I loved my job and it's what I'd always wanted to do. And number two, there was a whole other group of people with a disability that were going to come after me and I wanted them to know that, you could do whatever you wanted in life when you had a really great supportive team and great technology at your fingertips. 
I wanted to ask you about technology because I've heard you talk about it in quite a few interviews before and it sounds like an incredible setup you've got there. Can you walk us through how that job actually functioned when you were at Triple J? Yeah, so from the tech perspective, I had this incredible system made for me where I would have JAWS, the little screen reading software, loaded onto the computer and it would scan everything on the screen and read it out aloud. And so it was the technology I was using anyway to to write my scripts and stories and all of that sort of thing in my day-to-day personal life with emails and stuff. But we had it in the on the laptop in the studio and I basically would have the headphones on and listen to the stories and repeat what I was hearing. And then on top of that was also obviously the clock telling me when to start and finish because it's obviously very carefully timed bulletins. And then I could hear myself coming through the microphone and then finally the little grabs or audio snippets that you play during the bulletin. And I was doing that obviously at the same time of also panelling the desk and, you know, fading and pressing all the buttons and things like that. So there was a lot going on and it was quite full on. But it That was- is so much going on. I can't, like, hearing <laughs> you say that, for anyone who's not across audio stuff who might be listening to the podcast but isn't into the media or doesn't know how it functions so much, that is an incredible amount of work, Naz. Like, I struggle to host a podcast and press the right button when I need to press it. Like, more often than not, I get it completely wrong and I need to do it maybe once or twice in an entire podcast recording that goes for an hour. Did it take you a while to settle into the groove or do you kind of like, are you the kind of worker who likes to have a full plate that you can manage on your own? Look, I think I am the kind of worker who does love a full plate, but it did take a a bit of time to get used to. And that's why I think, you know, early on I was making, you know, a few mistakes and there were some pronunciations that were a bit out of whack. I blame JAWS, the screen reading software for that though, because (laughs) it it can't pronounce things properly. But, you know, and and so I didn't blame people for kind of getting the shits with me here and there. But, you know, imagine doing all that and then all of a sudden, the computer decides to just have a brain freeze and die like it and you know and that happened a couple of times and I just had to I just became really good at like ad-libbing and just chatting to the audience and I think the thing was I never pretended when things went wrong sometimes I would literally say man my computer's just died and I'm sorry that we can't take <laughs> story because I think in you know people f- I hope found that refreshing and real that sometimes even when you do put your best foot forward it it sometimes still stuffs up and it's okay because it happens for the best of us and it's just life. And so I, I hope I, you know, and I think in the end, that's what the, the beautiful relationship that I had with the audience was that I was real, they were real. We were we were really good at telling people, you know, telling each other when we liked what we did, when we didn't. And I, you know, some of the best memories are, you know, of course, my beautiful colleagues who are just some of my best mates, but also having that instant connection with such a dynamic and incredible audience. I read another really beautiful quote of yours, which is when you wrote, I think it was earlier this year, and you said, when I was little, I wanted to be a journalist because I liked the idea of making a difference. As I got older and started noticing the inequalities people with disabilities face in areas like employment and education, I wanted to become an advocate. I had no idea that I could do both. What does that mean to you? Well, initially when I started the job at Triple J, I just wanted to work at Triple J and I wanted to just be a newsreader. And I was so stoked that I got to do that. And then when I started getting all these emails from people saying, we need your help, we want to, you know, make sure that these students that are coming into our 
Unicourse this year can actually have an accessible place to learn and then, you know, we need to know what we can do to, to make them employable and get them ready. Or when I was hearing from principals saying we've got a kid who um, has multiple disabilities, we have nothing set up but we want to, can you please help us? I realised that having, I guess, a, a public profile meant that I, I could affect change and I could help people who wanted to make a difference and and to put in place those structures so that people didn't have to struggle with all those things that I did, like crappy attitudes from teachers and poor resourcing and stuff like that. And it was a pretty, it felt like a, a huge responsibility, but something that I really wanted to do. And I'm I'm still doing it now. I, I mentor a bunch of kids who, um, you know, I've known for years. I've got one particular girl who I met when she was nine and now she's nearly 14 and to see the changes in her confidence and her intelligence and independence has been the most rewarding thing I think I'll ever get to do. It's been amazing. Talk to us about your new role. You are now disability affairs reporter for the ABC and you told us off mic that you began this role after noticing that there needed to be sweeping improvements to the ways that journalists report on disability. With a handful of colleagues, you started collating a guidance note for how the media reports on people with disabilities. Is that right? Yeah, so really started from that. I started getting a, a group of people here at the ABC with lived experience of disability together and we discussed how to put this guidance note together. And then when I went to pitch this idea of the guidance note and present it to the executive team here at the ABC. At the end of the, I guess, the presentation where they'd said to me, yep, this is fantastic. We're going to definitely, um, we we want this. I said, okay, well, since I've now got your attention, I've got a few other things I want. And so when they approached me to, to do this role, I was absolutely thrilled and couldn't wait to get started because I have obviously been a journalist for almost 10 years, but been working in the advocacy space also um, for for longer than that. And so I had all these amazing issues that I wanted to get out there for the public to know about. I knew of so many incredible people that had stories to tell, and I wanted to give them the support and the platform to tell those stories. And it's, I've only, you know, six weeks in or whatever it is, and I'm loving it. It's, it's, I almost feel really bad that I've gone from one dream job to another, but it was so bittersweet to leave Triple J. It was my home for seven and a half years. I grew so close to the audience and loved my colleagues, but this just feels like the right place to be. I wanted to ask you about love. We are very nosy when it comes to love, Naz, and we met your beautiful husband, Tom, just before we jumped on. You met each other in a newsroom in New South Wales, is that right? We wanted to know, what do you love about your relationship? Talk to us about Tom. So, funny story, I met uh, Tom the same day my parents did, in fact. So, mum and dad had driven me down to Bega on the New South Wales far south coast and we were going to find me a place to live and they were, they said, oh, why don't we go into your office and we'll have a look around there and we can show you around so you know how to get around independently. And so, we walked in unannounced and Tom was there and answered the door and showed us around and, you know, we all had a bit of a chat and then we walked out and my dad said, oh, he's super nice. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he's all right. Um, didn't think anything of it. And anyway, so obviously I you know, moved down there a couple of months later and he and I just hit it off. He's incredibly intelligent. You know, not a day goes by even now, like eight and a half years later where I don't learn something new about him or about the world. He's just, 
His brain is just incredible. But he's also really funny and fun and gentle and and I think for me he just saw me as me you know I'd obviously dated other people before and it was always I felt like my disability was always going to be this barrier to finding love or being in a relationship and it was never anything that I thought of when I met him because he was um completely just treated me like a person and it was wonderful Naz, I love that description of your marriage so much and it actually reminded me of an intro that journalist Saskia Tillers did for Stella Magazine when she interviewed you recently. She wrote, Naz Campanella is a respected journalist, has just landed her dream job, is happily married and has an adoring network of family friends. And yet on a regular basis, the 31-year-old is confronted by strangers on the street desperate to offer their condolences. I cannot even begin to imagine how infuriating that must be. i want your insight into whether or not you think Australians are getting better and are more educated now when it comes to disability or if there is still a huge way to go with the general public. I think it's getting better, but it's been so slow. And I think, you know, as you see more people out there with a disability, you know, you've got incredible people like Eliza Hull, Carly Finlay, just to name a couple who happen to be mates. But, you know, when you see people like that out there writing, speaking, studying, doing all kinds of things, I think that's the only way we will really have progress. You know, I'd love to get to a stage where you open a magazine, you turn on the telly, you walk down the street, you know, you're in the shops, catwalk, wherever it is that you see people with a disability participating in every aspect of life. And I think it it is happening, but it's really slow. I mean, how many times do I, you know, walk into a department store and I'm shopping with my husband, go to the cash register and the woman behind it will say, oh, you're so lovely for helping her. And it's like, no, he's my husband. And, you know, actually I'm helping him because I'm the one who's about to pay for these, you know, items that we're just about to buy. Or (laughs) my God, just little things like that. And people don't, maybe they don't realise they're doing it, but it's these like, just the language they use, it's so disempowering. And it's this view that we are there to be fixed, cured, that we have something wrong with us. I'm very happy with the life I lead. And with the fact that I have a disability. It's it's not who I am. It's part of who I am though. And I'm not ashamed of it. And I never will be. And I I hope that other young, you know, people coming through don't have to feel ashamed about that ever again because it's a it's a part of who they are. And I think the more that you know, we have incredible people out there writing and and putting these issues on map and demanding that people understand that we want the same things as everyone else, love, respect, relationships, work, nice clothes, whatever it is, you know, it's how is it different to what you want? Do you get a small kick out of proving people wrong? I know I was looking back at that conversation we had at the start of the episode where you said when you were 10 years old and you had those teachers who were kind of breathing down your neck and calling you lazy and so many people I imagine across the course of your life have underestimated your abilities. Do you get a small kick out of saying, look at me now? I have have had loads of experiences where people have told me I couldn't do something or made me feel really crappy. But I love proving people wrong, but I'm not one of those sorts of people who will go back and I guess overtly say, you know, look at me now and and you know, you were so wrong. I think the power is really in doing the job that 
they said you couldn't and doing it to the best of your ability or acing the exam that people said you couldn't. And I think that's that's where the power is for me because people know when they've been proven wrong. They don't need me to tell them. Naz, you've spoken a lot today about even mentoring young people with disabilities and kind of keeping on pushing on for the younger generation that's coming through that you hope things are a little bit better and a little bit safer for. And I want to know, what do you want your legacy to be? I know it's an enormous question, but for someone like you who is a beacon of light for a lot of young people with disabilities, what would you like your legacy to be? I just want disability to not be this thing that people can't talk about, that people don't want to happen to their children or that it's this weird elephant in the room. You know, I just want it to be this person is brilliant at what they do. They dress really amazingly. They are a great speaker. They're a great friend, role model, whatever they might be. Oh, yeah, they happen to have a disability too. I just want it to be not this thing that everyone needs to be scared of. And there are so many people in the disability community that are doing incredible work. And I must also add that, you know, I'm one person speaking from my personal experience and I'm one person that's part of a huge, diverse community of people with disability and we all have our own experiences and perspectives and each each and every one is unique from the next. But I think I think it would be safe to say that a, a lot of us just want us to have equal access to all of those things that so many other people in this world have access to. Now, as I suspect, there may be a whole lot of overlap between this next question and what you just mentioned then, but we have to ask you anyway, because it's the last question we always ask. And that is, what does success look like to you with all of this in mind? Success to me is getting up every day, doing what I love, what makes me happy, putting my best foot forward. And that looks, you know, a bit different every day, but knowing that I hopefully have contributed to my community and hopefully that it'll it'll make a difference one day. Naz Campanella, thank you so, so much for joining us on this In Conversation episode of Shameless. As we said, it is months in the making, but it has been a delight to have you on and we absolutely adore what you do. Oh, girls. And can I just say that you two should be incredibly proud of this podcast community that you have you know, put together at such a young age. And um, it's so wonderful to to see you guys get bigger and better and, and continue thriving. It's It says a lot for what young women can do and um, you should be really proud of yourselves as well. You are such a legend and it has been such a delight. Thank you so much, Naz. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Naz Campanella. If you'd love more from Naz, you can find her on Instagram at Naz Campanella. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you'll also love our 2019 In Conversation episodes with author and Naz's friend, Carly Finlay, as well as our chat with Naz's former Triple J colleague, Bridget Hustaway. We'll pop links to both of those episodes in our show notes. As for us, well, the best way to support Shameless is to subscribe to our show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd so appreciate you clicking the big purple subscribe button. If you're listening on Spotify, we'd love it if you clicked follow. That helps new listeners find our show every single week. That is all from us. We will be back in your ears on Monday with a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. See you then.
Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.